Yeah, we were thinking that um, one thing is because people have been sitting, so if people need to go stand in the back or if people need to go use the restroom, that's okay to leave during the Q&A. But um, if there are any questions and answers or things to, to, you'd like to discuss or share that, please feel free. And we'll, we'll kind of share it with um, both of us. No. <laughs> Sometimes I have to remember to bring the meta into it. I mean, yeah. So it's it's not necessarily on all the time. But one thing that that has, that it's different now for me after a lot of years is things don't take quite the hold that they used to. So I can still be irritated with people, and I still at times I'm human. I can still re I can still react from that place. But what I've noticed is. I drop things a lot faster or I can open up the space a lot more quickly. And part of that is because of doing that practice that that comes into it more. There is a, there is a general feeling of uh, knowing the regrets of not being kind and not, not wanting to keep going there. It's like you touch the stove enough times in, when it's hot and finally you realize you're just not going to touch it anymore. And it's kind of like that with some of our unskillful habits we reap fruits that aren't good and we reflect on that. And that's what encourages us to start using these tools, whatever we need to use. And, um, and then in the use of those tools, we start, we start shifting our behaviors. We actually start shifting the way we do things. So actually, in a way, the metta comes more readily. But I'm not thinking all the time, I've got to do my metta practice. It just starts to become more secondhand does that make sense? It just becomes more a part of the, the like, you know, we, we have so often when we come to the practice, we realize we have a lot of really unskillful, unhealthy habits. And then we do this practice and we work on those habits and we work to shift them and we, de we develop more wholesome habits. And those habits are actually, the, the more wholesome habits are actually useful until we get to a place where we can just put it all down. Well, I'm not there yet, so I still am with the, the wholesome, trying to develop those wholesome habits. And so the metta becomes more, or the feeling like I want to be kind to people, um, and that ability to, when I see that I'm, I've pulled back for some reason, whatever the reason is, and I see that I've done that, then it's like, click, that's not where I want to go. So then it's coming back to what, what feels like the more appropriate thing to do in this circumstance. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> oh, keep with it. Absolutely. Well, and when you're doing metta practice, it's not just, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's actually with... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say it's, it's um, and I may be off track, but it's not, it's not a mental exercise. It's actually when you're doing metta, you start with the words and over time, what you're really wanting to pay attention to, and yeah, we do send metta out there, but actually what we're paying attention to is what is that... What is the aroma? What is the sign of metta? How do, we, how do we feel it? Where do we feel it? And we start becoming familiar with that. And that becomes more a part of our being. 
And so it really comes from recognizing that feeling. And, and that's, that's what metta is really about. And then in that feeling, when we send that out there, it's coming from, it's really just our, our heart is in that place of really wishing somebody well, wishing people well, wishing ourselves well. Does that make sense? It gets out of the head. When, yeah. when you identify that something's amiss, what is it that gives you that clue? So to me, that says you're already tapping into the jitta, to the heart, because you're already aware of it. It's, you're, not, you're not figuring it out up here. You're actually feeling it. That's, so that you're not just locked into your head. Even though your head, they work together. Uh-huh. They have to work together. Um, and so you're, you're actually, you're having then that sensation right. and you're, and that's cueing you in. And then, yeah, we have to use a little bit of the intellect to kind of guide us until it becomes more of a natural thing. But yeah, you're using your heart, your heart's involved. If you're sensing it and you're feeling it in your body, um, and, and it's, you know, I, Sakula may want to add to that, but I, I would just say that your heart's very involved in that because you're. You're willing to, you're just that feeling of something being amiss is very, very much that way. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, Here. Um, I'd also uh, want to emphasize that meta isn't something that goes away. We don't actually, we can't actually take ourselves out. We can't take ourselves out of the universe. We can't take ourselves out of uh, the ocean of truth. What we do is we tell ourselves that we've lost it, that we're disconnected. But truly, all we have to do is recognize that, and this isn't always easy to do, but you're starting to do it, is to recognize that I'm obstructing my view of metta. I'm telling myself that I I don't have it. When actually you're connected, like Debbie was saying, you're connecting with what's going on with this sense of suffering. You're identifying this sense of suffering. But suffering is not separate itself from metta. We have compassion for ourselves, which is coming up for you, it sounds like. Having some compassion for ourselves that I'm suffering and I really want to, I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm, I'm searching for a way to not suffer. This is compassionate. And this is a doorway to recognizing, you know, goodwill. There's goodwill and compassion. So we're, we're in meta. All you have to do is recognize that, oh, there's, I'm having some compassion for myself. I don't want to suffer. But we're not actually separated from meta even when we're suffering. So recognizing the compassion to ourselves that 
I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm going to keep searching. You know, this in itself is a doorway. You're already in meta. You're just not recognizing it. You're not telling yourself that, oh, this is meta. It's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to let myself stay here out of compassion with this uncomfortable feeling of suffering until it changes. That's kindness. That is meta in itself. So having the patience to stay with this uncomfortable feeling of suffering. And as we do this, we start to see what we're saying to ourselves of making us suffer. I'm disconnected from meta. I can't do meta. I will one day I'm going to get it. Someday I'm going to get it. That's something that we can just, like Ajahn Chah would say over and over. I've heard this from Lung Purpasana many times. Just point to your brain and say, liar. <laughs> it's not true. You know, it's, it's, it's there and we can recognize it. So understanding what we're doing that's making ourselves suffer takes staying with that feeling of suffering, which takes a lot of compassion and goodwill. And then we can go, oh, that's it. Here's the meta. Here's the compassion. And I'm suffering. Stay with that uncomfortable feeling and notice when it stops. It has to stop. But staying with it from that place of awareness, of being totally aware that I'm suffering, that's compassion, that's metta. And then it passes and the metta and goodwill is still there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's also really um, a lot of times we read things and we get ideas in our head of what they are and um, and then the experience we might miss miss the experience because it's because we're still trying to frame it you know um, but it sounds like you're already connecting in and just kind of the, developing a sense of trusting yourself on that and you're not stupid <laughs> And we all make the same mistakes over and over. That's how we learn. <laughs> I remember um, in the early days and taking the precepts, and I remember saying to Ajahn Amaru, oh, I just, I don't want to take them because what if I blow it? And he goes, good, good, that's good. That's how you learn. <laughs> Your distinction, uh, what's your take on the difference between meta 
Why we um, so compassion? I think it's more the willingness to see the suffering in ourselves and in others, the way that people suffer, and and metta is more. You can see that suffering, and then you can feel. You can feel a kind of kindness for them, but it's it's one thing to see the suffering, and then some people might might see the suffering. And they can't, they can't bear it. They can't be around it. But they feel it. But they don't know what to do with it. And I think metta then is just kind of developing that sense of wishing them well. And it changes. I think it actually changes us when we come from that place. Um, let me see something. Word. Um, for myself, how I look at loving kindness or, or metta. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, the, the difference for myself is that compassion tends to make me move forward. So I see somebody uh, trip and I move forward to help them. Um, I see somebody, uh, my grandson cries and I move forward to put my arm around him. Um, metta is a lot about not picking up, uh, ill will toward myself or to other people. Just not, not even, it doesn't need me to take action. It's more about not obstructing the truth of kindness and goodness and friendliness in my heart. Uh, and then c- compassion makes me move forward because of suffering. Uh, metta doesn't need to bother with suffering. It's It's a recognition that uh, in order for me to suffer, I have to, dis- I have to um, obstruct my view of the goodness that is truly the ocean of goodness. I'll just put it that way. So, um, loving kindness, uh, loving friendliness, goodwill—it's it's natural. Uh, it's like watching a. Um, plant, a tiny, tiny plant breaks through uh, cement. It doesn't have any idea that there's an obstacle in its way. It's just going to go reach for the sun because that's what feels good. So it's like not bothering um, getting stuck with obstacles because of what we think shouldn't be in our way, but reach for the goodness. Move in the world from a place that's beautiful, that's full of, um, you know, uh, bright light nurturements, nurturements and, and uh, warm, warms the heart. It's just like you don't need to pick up the garbage. Uh, don't need to get upset because there's cement over my head. I'm still going to find my way to the sun. Whereas uh, goodwill, I mean, compassion... Uh, makes me move forward uh, to help others at a time when they're not seeing uh, the beauty in the world or the beauty in their own heart or, you know, just little simple things. But for me, it's a, it's an ongoing f- uh, effort to continue to turn toward goodness, like willing good, meta, and a response to the world when I see the suffering or feel the suffering of another 
or myself. That's compassion. That's the that's the difference. But they but, but they're so similar. I mean, they're, they're, they have each other as their companions. I would say. Does that make any sense to you? So be patient because that may be too big to pick up right away. Um, I know some of the teachers when they teach, like Ajahn Brahm, when he teaches metta, he has because metta is, believe me, it's difficult for many Westerners. It's a, it's it's the antithesis of what we're brought up to 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 be with ourselves. And um, he would he would have them visualize, and and so we'd have them visualize having this, like in their meditation having this cute little puppy or kitten or whatever it is that's that makes your heart glow he'd have you visualize that you're sitting holding one and just really sit with that during your meditation and get the, what does that feel like and then learning to work with that feeling what brings that feeling up it's a very much a feeling tone um and start there but start with the thing that's you know don't go to charles manson yet <laughs> that's a that's a that's that 500-pound weight versus a 5-pound weight. <laughs> and, um, but you can have compassion for him. Can you feel compassion for him? That he was suffering? So there's a difference right there. You could feel the compassion for him because really there was confusion. There was ignorance. There was whatever. Um, but, you know, you just have to keep working. The metta takes a lot of time. And it's huge that you can see the obstacles. That's a huge thing. It's actually really helpful because you can see what some of the obstacles are, and then you can reflect on that. What is that? What, what's the challenge here? You don't have to even necessarily have an answer, but you're just opening up the question. And a lot of times the mind, the heart will answer eventually, and you'll have a little bit more clarity on it. But that's what this practice is so much an exploration. Um, and we're given these tools, and we we do we tr- we work with these tools, and it's an exploration to find out where where it's not working, what's what's it bringing up, what's holding us back. Um, so yeah, don't don't give up. It's really um, it's really invaluable, and the feeling is so. When you start to really get that feeling, um, the meta feeling, it's very potent. So, so am I correct that it's not. 
but you have to develop it here. And then I think it's kind of like prayer. There's the power of prayer, and people say they feel it in other places, but you have to have it here first. Um, so I think we're developing metta, and we say those sayings, is to try to help us open up to other people and to, to share so that we're not just too egocentric. Um, but actually where you have to develop it is here. And then, you know, they, uh, Lungpur Liam, uh, if you, you've heard of Lungpur Liam, he's the senior uh, monk at Wapapong. Wap he took over after Ajahn Chah got sick and couldn't communicate anymore. And I think he once said that he decided to work on equanimity because those monks that had metta, nobody would leave them alone because <laughs> everybody wanted to be around them all the time. So... <laughs> So he chose equanimity. <laughs> so there is, when, you're, when you've developed it, there is something that people feel. I, I can tell when there's people, monks or whatever, that have developed their metta. Like you can feel it. Um, you can feel it when they've developed their compassion. And so in a way, it is giving out. Um, but I think in the development of it, what we're doing by saying those things is we're starting to remove our own obstacles to really truly feeling, um, what's the word, Un Entangled. unentangled, unblocked. Like not, not, we're not picking specific, unobstruct, we're not picking specifics that we want to send our metta to. We're developing that ability to, to, to send it across the board to everybody. But it does take time, just like the practice. It all, all of this stuff takes time and patience. But it's very worthwhile because in the end, we benefit. And then when we benefit, Everybody else benefits because we're in a more skillful, spacious place that we can be more present for anything. Yeah, you may have to still go through some feeling like somebody stole my puppy <laughs> and some hurt and some separation. But, um, yeah, I think it just gives us skills for, for opening. And that's what a lot of this is about is just constantly learning how to open, not close down. And in opening, we, we become willing to be present for anything, and it, it, pleasant, unpleasant. And then when people on the path that are really, really developed, they don't even really so they say, <laughs> distinguish between pleasant and unpleasant. It's kind of like it's just experience. And they just, it's experiences that keep coming and flowing. But, you know, we, we, we start from where we are. And, um, and, and the thing with metta is also to, to really, you have to have it for yourself first. You can't, you can't feel kindness for somebody else if you're not truly feeling the ability to be kind to yourself. And that's what a lot of people miss. And it isn't in the words in themselves, but that just develops our sense of <clears throat> learning to open and spread it across the board. Yeah. Is that? Uh, you've got Alistair and then Jane. Okay. I'm just, just going to share and sort of ask a question just hearing some of Christine, I resonated with that. And when I first came into Meta, 
magic charm, right? Like somebody had said, this is music. This one pop song is music, right? That's music. And you know, that was the definition of music. And then it was not an attractive one to me, right? It's just not attractive. And then bits and pieces, oh, this is music. And I think um, that's that's what we do. We we find skillful means. So if you keep that chant, you have it, you know it, and it's there. And when you need it, you can pull it forth. So you had, you had a question also. Well, it seems that um, we're encouraged to compare ourselves to others, and it seems like it's a very common experience to feel like we're incapable of doing things that other people might be able to do, that we just kind of put ourselves down or undermine ourselves a lot. I mean, I know that I certainly did, and I wasn't aware that I was doing that. Um, and I, I just think from the different people I've talked to and the people that I hear, we tend to be so intellectual. So we kind of, that connection between the mind and the heart, the heart-mind, um, is really important. And it's not encouraged in our society to pay attention to the heart. So like we tout intellectual advances. But um, and it, it goes through phases. So, you know, we went through the love child phase, but I'm not sure that was even on track. Um, <laughs> even though that was an effort to, to go against the stream of, like, the Vietnam War and stuff. Um, I just think that we're, we're harder on ourselves. We're more criti self-critical, and we compare a lot. Uh, we feel guilt when we do something wrong. Um, in some countries, they don't know what guilt is. 
they don't understand that. Like, I, I think it was Lumpur tells that story, and I think it was Lumpur Panyan, Panyananda or something, a Thai monk, and he was, a, he was the translator. And somebody said they feel guilty because of something they had done. And, um, and it was maybe our Puritan ethic, I don't know. Um, a long time ago, and, and Lumpur, if I'm getting this correct, which I might not be fully, but his, his sense was that he, didn't, he couldn't find the words for it because in Thai language they didn't have those words. But then he finally kind of got the explanation across, and the monk just got this look. And I've, I think it was Ajahn Panyanand. Anyway, he got this look on his face, and he was like, oh, that's so sad. So, you know, that's perhaps not everybody is like that, but and maybe things are shifting as the world becomes a more international place. Like, there's more mixing with different cultures. But... Um, it, it seems to be my experience. We're kind of pitted against each other. Who's going to be at 4.0s? And you have to have this bell curve, and this many people can succeed, and there has to be this many people that fail. And, and you know, I mean, there's a lot of pitting against and comparing. Does that make? Does that seem to be your experience? Well, um, well I just had a vision of the Buddha What are you trusting? Well, I'm a therapist. I, I trust that whatever's happening is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't particularly feel like I have my pulse, the thing of my finger on the pulse of what's supposed to happen or how it's supposed to happen or what someone's processes or if they should be suffering or not suffering. It's just what, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because <laughs> that's not exactly meta, but I think that's a, a, an opening because you're not trying to control things. You're not trying to direct them in the way you think they should be. Um, it's a reflection that I have a lot lately, and I don't, I'm not quite sure where, but um, it's like a, visiting my father one time, driving down the... There was a traffic jam because there was a, a tree had fallen onto the freeway. This was within the last year, year and a half. And where they directed us back onto the freeway, like I got directed by ways around the traffic jam, and it brought me right on the freeway right before the crash. And when I drove by a car that got hit, it was chilling because that tree fell right across the passenger and driver. 
right across, like one second before, one second after, it would have been other. But it didn't. It happened. And I heard that recently with Australia. Um, two firemen, a tree fell, and they were where they were. They just lost control, and they flipped, and they both lost their lives. And the the chief said, one second before, one second after, it would have been a different outcome. And so I get that feeling of I don't understand it, but it just what it just is what happened. And whatever for whatever reason, we just kind of have to accept that because we can, I don't think. I don't have the power to fully understand that. So in a way, I think, yeah, you just have to trust that what you're going through. And a lot of times, things that feel from our point of view at this moment within our lives, we think are absolutely the worst possible thing that could happen. When you look back sometime later and you go, actually, I came through that and that actually worked out. I don't know if it was the best thing because I don't know what the alternatives would have, how, what would have been the result. But looking back at it, I see actually there were some outcomes that were actually really useful, really good. But at the time, it felt like the most horrible thing that could happen, if that makes sense. We just can't know. And some things we have, most things we have no control over. So in a way, yeah, trust and just be present and get through with the most skillful way that we can. And that we can trust. We can trust our foundation. We can trust our sense of living by precepts. We can trust our sense of kindness. We can trust in those things. And then a lot of things we just, those will guide us through those times when we don't have any way of, figure, of reasoning it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's okay, too, that you're aware of it. That's great. But we're, because we're so close to it. We're so close to it. Yeah. And and it, it is often easier to, to, to see it in other people and to feel it for them. But for ourselves, it's more challenging because we're stuck in the middle of that confusion. And it's not a very comfortable place to be. But, you know, it's what can you do? You just have to stay with it and keep working with it and, and keep paying attention to what comes up. And sometimes it's really helpful to just go, what's coming up and how is that manifesting in the body? The body's a really, really useful place to tap into. It's, it gives a lot of clues. And it's very grounding. It has the ability to really ground us again. I wonder also if there's also a clue in like when we do the meditation with you know, those people who are closest to us and you know, tap into the feeling as you get further away. You know, it's a little harder. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And, 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 you know, all of these things like metta, compassion, they all have near enemies. So things that are like them, like empathy is like compassion, but empathy we actually maybe get a little bit too involved in our feeling 
other people's suffering. And so, you know, and when you're just set, when you're feeling that love for people that are close to you, sometimes that's tangled up with a lot of attachment. And true metta is, you if if you're really practicing, you learn to develop it to feel that. Eventually, you will be able to develop it to the point where you can you can feel it across the board. But you know, we all have to start somewhere, and and you can't start with those ones out there. You got to start with what what helps you start to develop that sense. And I like this practice. The most important thing is patience. Really staying with it and really giving it our best. Anything you want to add? I think just as important as patient is wise discernment. Is discerning when we um, are trying to do more than we actually have the skills to do. Uh, so stepping back, and I used to ride horses, train, and I'd, I was in training to train my own horse. And one of the lessons that we, one of the first lessons I got in training my horse was um, to when you you introduce a new technique to the horse, a new skill. If they don't pick it up, you take you go back to a skill that they can do, and you do that one, and then you end the lesson. But you never push them when they're not getting it. And so, but what we do is we go in our heads and said, "I should get this. Why am I? Why am I not getting this? That's ill will." You know, if we recognize, oh, that's ill will. Stop. Then we have. You know, that we're using our discernment and we can't forget that. We must stay connected with our discernment. Remember our goal. Our goal is to not have ill will, act, not to activate and nourish ill will. Okay, how do I, how do, I do this? Let me step back. Let me go back to my puppy, you know, or my kitten or my grandma or whatever. Um, but... Uh, not needing to pick up uh, a relationship that's really that, where we do have a strong attachment. So it's uh, because that just gets entangled. The jealousy can come up, or protectionist, or or anything like that. But just real simple kindness. Where is it easy to just be kind? You know, and so just step back into that place. And like Debbie's been saying recognize and acknowledge what that feels like and <laughs> congratulate ourselves be aware of that i can do this because that's like that can be that feeling then can become a beacon for us when we that can help us recognize when we have stepped out of our capacity beyond our capacity well, i have that feeling now the other thing is not we don't have to like everybody. There's nothing wrong with feeling uncomfortable. It doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It means, you know, our attention is, we're not discerning where we're placing our attention. That's all it means. We're not discerning where we're paying our putting our attention. Because there is karma. There will be risen conditions based on all actions, all thoughts that we have. It's, there's going to be some karma on it. So using our discernment to place our attention on that which is wholesome and will bring a good feeling in the heart, will bring a softness, uh, a non-obstructed acknowledgement of what is 
present right now, whatever it is. And the metta is being able to accept whatever that is. Uh, there. <laughs> I think I think sometimes, yeah, our schedules and our lives don't permit us to respond in that, like, like in that way at that time, and then it's just kind of like being attuned to it, be 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 like learning to just tap in periodically. Um, I know people who <laughs> who set their watches so they'll beep every hour, or whatever, and then that then that's their moment of mindfulness. And that was Thich Nhat Hanh used to encourage that, the bell. Um, something that triggers you to just take a moment to reflect. Maybe that's the best you can do. One one minute. Ajahn Sachito put out a little book, um, clar- something clarity. It was a little tiny book. I was. Think, I don't, you probably don't have any here. There's a little tiny book, and he starts off with, it's like meditation for busy people, basically. And the first oh, one is like, yeah, Ajahn Sachito. The first one is like 30-second meditation. If that's all you have time for, you can do this. So you just find techniques that you can bring in to tap in, just to just feel whatever's reverberating and realizing I can't, I can't fully stay with this right now because I have to take the next person. I have the next thing in my job to deal with. My child needs this. My husband, you know, whatever it is. But, you, but it's in your consciousness. You're not running wild with this thing going on in there and you're not attuned, that you're not at all tapping into. Mm-hmm. So I did that this week. And, and so, so you're sort of saying that, that, um, that doesn't, doing that doesn't mean that that feeling will go away. You know, like it just lasts how long it lasts. Yeah, and then when you... The feeling lasts and when it's yeah. 
And you have to acknowledge it. It's, it's difficult things. You know, there's difficult things, and there, some things are extremely challenging to deal with. And so then it's kind of like, okay, I can't do this right now. What can I do that's going, what about if I take a hot soak? Or what if I, just something that's physically going to let my body be at ease. Because the body and the mind are so intertwined. Um, you just have to figure out what you can fit in that's going to be supportive. And then when you have a chance, like you took today, you were able to take today, and then you can feel the, cha the difference. Um, but you don't always have that opportunity. Even at the monastery, sometimes it's tremendously busy. Um, um, and you just have to figure, you just have to keep kind of looking, what can I do? What can, what's a good thing for me to do right now? I have this five minutes. What would be a good way to use that? Do I want to go get a coffee or do I want to go just pause somewhere, go sit in the garden somewhere that's just next door or something like that? And when does it, when, at a period, would you let go of the schedule because you just have to have that? You know, like, when would you? Well, we... <laughs> He might. He doesn't have to ask anybody, though. <laughs> he can do what he wants. <laughs> but if, if uh, something was really coming up for me and I needed to go and be away or something, I could probably ask. But I would have to go talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. I can't just disappear. Um, but I think that, you know, we, we have the structure of the day. So we have the morning meditation. We have the evening meditation almost every day. And so we have a time when we all sit together in silence, and I think that's very supportive because you're having other, you kind of have this routine that you're you've accepted as part of the, the community, and so you tap into that routine, and that routine actually is supportive. It sometimes feels like you're drained and you can't do it anymore, and, but actually is very supportive. And then you know most of the time people have more time on their hands in, in that many afternoons are open for people to use. But, you know, a lot of times you have, like a lot of times I'd be still in the office because the stuff didn't stop coming. And um, <clears throat> sometimes the monks would have to go sew their robes or die. And, you know, I mean, there's always something to do. With, there's, just like you, there's household things to do too. So it's just, I think we all have to kind of take, build it into whatever, is available to us and figure out what are little things we can do in the meantime until we have the opportunity to really give it a little bit more attention. And that, you know, sometimes it's as simple as just, yeah, find out. Sometimes it's just as simple as like learning, developing that skill of getting into the body, breathing through the tension or wherever there's that discomfort, being with that, breathing with that, learning to let the breath apply some gentle, kind thoughts. Like, like it's almost like you can, you can develop a sense of that breath washing, washing over it, if that makes sense. Um, and, and, and it's trial and error, too. That's not really, this isn't the thing that's really going to help, but I think a lot of it is in the intention also. It's what? In the intention. You're, by the fact that you're pausing to do something, you're realizing that something's a little bit off kilter, and you have this intention to attend to it, and that's a beginning, and that that's helpful because that's an act of kindness. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's going to get there's going to be ugly things that we have to deal with. <laughs> it really shook me up seeing that car. 
Yeah, um, there, you, I don't know if you have this one. It's um, oh, my memory is so bad. It's a monk that, when he was a layman, he was married, and he he went away. I, I love reading biographies because I find that if they're being really honest, you're seeing the defilements of other people. They're willing to talk about them and express the difficulties and the challenges, and then you learn about where they how they worked with them, where they came out, how, the, how, they, how, they tar- how they polished those defilements. And it, this one, I, I think it's Ajahn Cow. Um, cow? Cow? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a Mechi Cow. No, there's Mechi Cow, but there's also an Ajahn Cow. And <laughs> he was one of Ajahn Mun's disciples. But So he was a while, a while ago. He's no longer alive. And when he was married, he traveled. And he came home one time, and he found somebody in bed with his wife. And his gut reaction was to go and grab a machete or something, and he was ready to kill them because he was so angry. Somehow he didn't. Maybe they got away. I'm not sure that I remember exactly correctly, but he didn't kill anybody. But it so shocked him that, that he was so able to do that, that he could feel that so intensely that he ended up going and ordaining and working with it. And then he became, over time, they said that, I, th- I think one of the stories went that they were on Tudong, and in, in the days of Ajahn Mun, there was a lot of jungle, and there were a lot of wild animals in that jungle, elephants, which can be pretty dangerous, and tigers. And they were walking, and they came upon an elephant, and this monk had developed metta to the level that Ajahn Mun actually had him go first. So he said, brother, please talk to this, the mother here. And so the monk, whatever he did, the elephant felt the safety, the goodwill, the elephant could feel that, and they were able to walk by. Now, maybe they would have been able to walk by anyway, but um, but they but this monk had developed. He was known for his metta. Um, that's just one example that I've heard of. I I feel it with people that I know have a lot of metta have done a lot of metta practice. They're just very um, very caring. Very caring and very understanding, a lot of space. Very spacious, being able to... I mean, I think the monks have a lot of metta, the senior monks, and a lot of compassion because they. I used to ask them, how can you deal with that? You get the same questions over and over and over again because there's always new people coming in, and it's the same questions in the tea times, you know. And and you could see, like with Lumpur, he's present for them, and he enjoys sharing Dhamma. And there's he feels a lot of goodwill for for the people and what they're what they're aspiring to and trying to help them find the way. But I like biographies. I find biographies really um, really uh, inspiring for me and encouraging because you see that people struggle. That they don't all come out of the womb <laughs> like that. <laughs> they have to work. Some do. There's a rare few that come out with these incredible abilities to be kind and gentle, but most people, it's, there's struggles they go through. I, I have a story. 
I worked in uh, top meditation in a prison for three years. And uh, one of the gentlemen in the class one day was really challenged because there was this officer that he particularly did not like and uh, deservingly so the officer from the sound of it was pretty aggressive with people and he would pick out particular people to publicly humiliate and I think that's from the sound of it that's somewhat common in the culture of prisons and this particular inmate um, was a hairdresser so he actually cut hair for uh, other inmates and this officer once asked him oh would you cut my hair and so and he was saying I, I don't trust myself I've got these sharp scissors and I hate this guy you know, I don't know what to do so Ajahn I remembered a story from Ajahn uh, Brahm and um, it's interesting we both brought him up <laughs> uh, and it was in one of the books he wrote, uh, I think it was called A Truckload of Dung. And uh, he shared the story. And so I just t- I tried the same exercise with him. And uh, the exercise was, see if you can um, uh, invite this... Uh, what was it? I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember exactly how I told the story that Ajahn Brahm. I'll start with the story of Ajahn Brahm, and it will probably trigger how we how I shared it with this gentleman. But there was uh, uh, Ajahn Brahm also was in had done um, prison work, and there and one of the inmates had come in and s- said the same kind of thing that I was talking about. But this this was for. Uh, inmate that had to make a cup of coffee for uh, he was in service for another um, officer in the morning and he had to get his everything ready for him to open up and start his day and he really didn't like this officer one of the th- his ch- chores was to make him a cup of coffee or a cup of tea I think it was make him a t- cup of tea every day and the only thing he, and he just wished he could poison it you know, just get rid of this guy because he was, he, he was so cruel in his heart. In his heart, he felt he was so cruel. and He would be doing a lot of people a f- favor. And he was getting that that wasn't a really healthy way. And he was miserable having to help this guy with his tea every day. And he wasn't sure what to do. And so Arjun Brahm had told him, this is what you do. You make him the best cup of tea you can possibly make just put your effort into wanting you know uh, make a goal of getting him the best tea he can you know best cup of tea and so he did this and after a couple of days of all right that's that's my goal it's just the tea has nothing to do with the officer i'm just putting in my effort to making the best cup of tea and then like several days go by and the officer one day asked him or said to him this is an excellent cup of tea thank you very much what are you doing and they started a conversation just about the tea and the officer was mellow around this gentleman because he was truly appreciative that this this inmate had put the effort into making him the best cup of tea he could so the the conditions of their 
relationship were changing because solely because the inmate was putting effort into a mundane activity that affected, but to do it as best he could. And this affected the other person, you know, just a mundane activity doing it in the, and that's, that's meta, that's goodwill. That's not getting obstructed with our views and opinions. It's just a cup of tea. And then to see the effect it had on the officer. So this, that now I'm remembering what, what this gentleman did. So he decided, yeah, I'm going to give him the best haircut I can give him. And so it became about the haircut and doing this mundane activity, despite who was receiving the benefit from it, despite his views and opinions about this officer, just set those down give him a good haircut. So he's coming from a place where he's connected with goodness and that changed the relationship between this particular officer and this particular gentleman who the idea of stabbing him in the neck with these scissors never came up. The, it, I, I shouldn't say that the idea came up, but there was no interest <laughs> in performing it. <laughs> it's like, because the habits there, so we don't have to feel bad that these ideas come up, but he was not engaged with it and he wasn't interested because that wasn't in line with the goal. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Would you like a haircut? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I got really sharp scissors. <laughs> yeah, and that's just kind of right into that feeds into that thing about well, all of our habits that we have that we feel we're stuck in, there's the possibility to change, and we just have to feel how can we turn it around? How can we deal with this differently? Because that's actually in making that nice cup of tea, that prisoner was supporting wholesome states of mind rather than unwholesome states of mind. And then eventually that becomes more normal and more comfortable. And that's how our practice is with all of our practice. It's kind of like we think of ways that we can actually start turning that around so that we're not always coming from that negative, unskillful, unwholesome behavior that gives us uncomfortable, awkward, um, unpleasant results. 